want to invite you to take out your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark. And Lord willing, we will be finishing tonight Mark the 8th chapter and going into verse 1 of Mark chapter 9. I do think that these, the end verse and the first verse of chapter, the end verse of chapter 8 and the first verse of chapter 9 do actually go together. And just by way of reminder, I want to point out the fact that last week brought us to what I consider to be the hinge point of the entire book, meaning that this was the this was the the fulcrum upon which the lever of the entire book turns, and that is the confession of Peter when he is asked who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. And of course we read in Matthew how he said, you're, um, he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We talked about the importance of that phrase. We talked about how the phrase that comes directly after that in Matthew's Gospel is often one fraught with confusion. And I did give a minority interpretation among Reformed scholars. I, I gave my thoughts on it last week. I do want to clarify something that I said last week. I, I did say that um, I think that you can understand the rock as Peter, understanding that Peter represents the apostles, and the apostles are, we, we, we have the apostolic church, which the book of Ephesians says the, the church is built on the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone but that is not to say that I don't understand that there are those many men whom I respect greatly such as the late Dr. R.C. Sproul who would desperately disagree with me and see the rock as being Peter's confession and so I don't want to simply discount those as saying they are absolutely wrong I'm just saying I don't see it that way I think that there is a simpler understanding and that was the understanding I gave last week. But I do understand the desire among Reformed theologians to distance themselves as far as possible from the teaching of Rome. Because Rome has so perverted that text as to make it the very foundation upon which the papacy is built. And anything that would support the papacy is a misreading of Scripture. And... Um, it is my contention that the papacy is one of the most dreadful institutions that has ever been forced upon the Christian church. And I will add to that when we consider that during the time of the Reformation when creeds and confessions were being written, particularly Reformed Confessions. One of the confessions, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which is the second Baptist Confession, actually identifies the Pope as the Antichrist. And that's just to give you an idea of how powerful was the feelings of the Reformers against the Papacy. They saw the Pope 
is not the vicar of Christ, but in that sense the vicar of the devil. He who stood in the place of Satan himself. So, as I said, if what I said last week was a little difficult to understand, I hope that it wasn't too bad, but I do want to at least say that I understand the reasoning for wanting to distance from that thought as far as, as possible. So, what we're reading tonight, beginning at verse 31, is what comes after this watershed moment. This huge, powerful thing has just happened. Jesus has heard from His disciples, Who am I? The Messiah. The Christ. The word Christ meaning Messiah. And then He began to teach them something they did not expect. And I don't remember if it was MacArthur or Sproul, it was one of them, who said that what we have here is a case of the best news followed by the worst news. And we've all been in situations like that where someone comes to us and says, I've got good news and bad news. Which do you want first? And typically we say we want the bad news first. That way somehow the good news might provide some balm to our pain, whatever the bad news is. Well, Jesus gives them, in one sense, an encouraging word. If we consider Matthew and Mark together, when Jesus tells them that he's going to build his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's going to give them the keys of the kingdom. They're going to be able to bind and loose. All of those things are good things. All those things are positive things. But then on the heels of that, we come to Mark 8, 31. And so let's read. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Verse 1 of chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. 
May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. We've already prayed. I'll simply say thank God for his word. So, as I said earlier, this is a difficult section. And I I say it's difficult in that Jesus is following up this very positive moment with the disciples with a moment that is very perplexing for them. And I want you to notice in Mark's Gospel, I don't, I don't know what translation you have. I think Andy has New King James, right? Is that right? Yes, sir. Well, in the ESV it says, And he began to teach them. Is that what it says in yours, in verse 31, chapter 8? Yes. He began? Yeah. Does anyone else have a different translation than that? Okay. Well, my reason for asking is, the word began there is easy to read by because you think, well, he just began to teach. But that's not the point, I don't think, of the word began there. Um, because if you compare this to Matthew 16, 21, which is the passage which parallels this in Matthew's gospel, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. See, that, see, see what the point is, uh, is, is that it seems as if after the watershed moment, remember how we said Mark's kind of like going this direction and then you get to this moment of who do they say I am, right? The, the Messianic proclamation and then from there it's to the cross, right? Right, remember what we said? He's, 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 been, he's been teaching them who he is. He's been identifying who he is through his proclamation and through his miracles and now we get to this moment of question who who do you say that i am and they say you're the christ the son of the living god okay now that you've come to that conclusion i'm going to tell you what comes next and what comes next is the hard part up until now we've had some skirmishes with the pharisees and some of them have been pretty lofty skirmishes but now we're headed to jerusalem Now we're headed to what I have come to do for the world. And so when it says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, I do believe this is where the focal point of Jesus' teaching begins to focus on his work on the cross. In fact, from now until the time of the cross, he's going to prophesy this three times. I don't have them written down. I had them in my notes. I, I, I don't have them in these notes. I'm sorry, but I do. It was three different accounts where he tells them he is going to suffer. Just in Mark's gospel. There's more, of course, different in Matthew and Luke. But it says he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that is his name for himself. That's what Jesus identifies himself, identifying himself with the Son of Man from Daniel's writings. That the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and after three three days, rise again. So right away, just quickly, you see four things that he is prophesying about himself. First, he says that he is to suffer. I'm writing these down because I want to show something about this it says first it says that he, he he teaches them that he is going to suffer and that he is 
Number two, going to be rejected. Number three, he tells them that he is going to die. That he is going to die. Or actually, in this text says, he is going to be killed. And then finally, it says, after three days, he is going to rise again. Now what is interesting about this is several fold, but I'll, I'll limit it to just a few things. One, of all of the things that were expected of Messiah, of all of the things that were expected of the Christ, and remember what we've talked about, that the Old Testament scriptures looked forward to the coming of Messiah, in fact, particularly within the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, there was great anticipation of the Messiah to come. And there was great expectation of what Messiah was going to do. They believed Messiah was going to rule. They believed Messiah was going to redeem. They believed Messiah was going to overthrow oppression and raise up the oppressed this is why when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey there is so much of a fanfare at his coming because there is the expectation that Jesus is now doing what the Messiah is expected to do the Messiah is expected to go and rule from Jerusalem, making the state or the nation of Israel the very capital of the world, with the Christ being the ruler. Now we've talked about this at length, uh, particularly during the Easter season, we talk about the fact that one of the reasons why Jesus was crucified was because he was rejected by um, Judas Iscariot who sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Why did Judas sell Jesus? Because we can assume Jesus, Jesus failed in some way to meet Judas's expectations of what Messiah would be. Some people, some people try to give Judas a little bit of a break. Some people say, well, maybe Judas felt like if he nudged Jesus, that that would nudge Jesus to the forefront and make Jesus do what he was supposed to do, which was overthrow the Romans. I think that's giving Judas a little too much credit. The Bible gives Judas absolutely no credit. It calls him an evil man. It says he was of his father the devil and all those things. I mean, it's very... The Bible doesn't give Judas any breaks. I don't think we need to either. Uh, I remember one night, this is years ago. I'm talking, wow. It's been years and years ago. I had a man come up to me. He was visiting the church, never saw him before, haven't seen him since. But he came up and he told me Judas was the hero. And I said, how do you figure? 
And he says, well, Judas was the hero because God used Judas to get Jesus to the cross. And I thought, well, that may be a perverted form of logic, but I guess there's some logic to the fact that, yes, there was a sense in which Judas was instrumental in Jesus getting to the cross because Judas sold Jesus and, of course, turned him over to the authorities. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that Judas is the hero any more than the brothers of Joseph were the heroes when they sold him into slavery and then later he became the king of Egypt and, and, and fed all the people and saved all those lives. I mean, that, that would be like saying, well, they're the heroes because because of what they did, Joseph ended up being a savior. Well, that's not how that works. They're still responsible for their sin. So too is Judas still responsible for his sin. But I digress. There was an expectation for Messiah that had been set. And Jesus has been doing many of the things that people expected. He has brought sight to the blind. Remember when, remember when John sent his disciples to Jesus when he was in prison? And Jesus said, go and tell them the sight, the, the, the blind have their sight and the, the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who is not ashamed of me. Remember this, Jesus said, go back and tell him that and that will comfort him to know that the prophecies of Isaiah are being fulfilled in me. Because that's what he was quoting. He was quoting the prophecies of Isaiah, saying these things are being fulfilled in me. Folks here? Somebody here? Oh, I thought I saw you. I thought I saw you. Uh, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Got a little distracted there. My bad. So, there are things that the Messiah was expected to do that Jesus has fulfilled. But the one thing that seems to have been missed by everyone... And this is the is clearly taught in the Old Testament, but somehow clearly missed by so many interpreters, was that the Messiah was to suffer, that he was to be rejected, that he was to be killed, and that he was to rise again. That was the thing that no one expected. And therefore, when Jesus made that proclamation of himself, Peter's response is so seemingly ridiculous. And I say ridiculous because can you imagine rebuking Jesus just for a minute? I mean, I have a hard enough time rebuking an older man I have a hard enough time rebuking anybody. You know, rebuking someone I respect, rebuking... You know what I'm saying? I have a hard enough time rebuking anybody, but particularly somebody I respect who might be older in a position of authority or whatever. That's a hard thing to do. Peter's rebuking the man who he just... I mean, the breath is still warm having come out of his mouth that he said, Thou art the Christ. Jesus said, okay, understand this. The Christ is going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again. No, you're not. What, a, what an amazing thing that Peter is doing there. He's rebuking the Lord of glory. This, it's, it's so nonsensical. 
but yet it makes perfect sense when you consider the the context of Peter's understanding of Messiah. Peter thought that that did not fit into what he understood about Messiah. He didn't understand that Isaiah 53 clearly points to the Messiah. Some Jews believe that Isaiah 53 points to Israel. Isaiah 53, if you don't remember, is about the suffering servant, the one whom uh, the, the, the sins are laid upon, the one whose stripes, by whose stripes were healed. You know, you remember that passage? And that particular passage has been understood by some Jews who reject Jesus to apply to Israel, but that passage is not intended to apply to Israel distinctly. It is intended to apply to Israel's Messiah, the true Israel. And, and in that sense, you could say yes, because Christ is identified as the true Israel. He is the true seed of Abraham. He is the true fulfillment of those things. But in this sense, it's not about the nation. It's about the nation's king. He is the suffering servant. And that's the theme of Mark. If you go through the four gospels, each one has a theme. And Mark's theme is, in a sense, Christ as the suffering Messiah or the suffering servant. And here we have this passage in Isaiah 53 which points this out and yet it is not understood that way until after Christ and they are able to see in Christ the one whose stripes healed the nations, the one who bore the sins of many. So, as I said, it makes sense that Peter would say this even though it doesn't make sense to me that he would rebuke Christ for such a thing as a fool's errand at best to rebuke the Lord. But before we move on to verse 33, I want to just mention one other thing. This fourfold thing, I said these things are what would not be, have been understood by the people of Israel to apply to the Messiah. These things would later by the Apostle Paul, be the very foundations upon which Paul would say the gospel is laid. Remember 1 Corinthians 15? This is the gospel that I proclaim to you, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised according to the scriptures. So how does Paul identify Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? He, he says it's, by the way, he's, he's saying according to the scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's saying that the very things that the people of Israel couldn't see were in the Old Testament or didn't see or didn't want to recognize were in the Old Testament. By the time 1 Corinthians 15 is written, Paul says we can see that the scripture clearly says that he would suffer, be rejected, be killed and die. Now it's not, it's not in that order, but you understand when he says he died according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised according to the scriptures. And so Paul, uh, not appealing directly to what Jesus had prophesied, but at the same event, saying this certainly was scriptural. It certainly was something that was prophesied. And therefore, even more reason for those who rejected Jesus and those who didn't believe what was going to happen had missed something that was so obvious. And that is that Jesus would die 
So Jesus has said, I'm going to die. According to the Scriptures. I'm going to die. Paul says, according to the Scriptures, Jesus just says that the Son of Man will suffer, be rejected, be killed, and will rise again. Peter rebukes him, pulls him to the side, rebukes him. Verse 33, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If you compare this to Matthew's Gospel, and this is Matthew 16, 23, it says, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Just one extra sentence, you're a hindrance to me. I do think sometimes we over-analyze and at times over-interpret, uh, meaning we put things in the text that I don't think are intended. I don't think Peter is possessed by Satan here. Some have come to that conclusion that Satan has entered Peter right after his confession. I don't think that that is the case. I think what Jesus is saying is that you're speaking the same words of Satan. You're you're attempting to hinder my progress by by calling me out and rebuking me, you are acting as Satan in the world. Do you remember what Satan has already done for Jesus? Satan has already offered Jesus a fast track. Because what is Jesus' ultimate destiny? That all the nations would be under his feet. Right? The post-millennial blessing. That all the nations of the world would be under the feet of Messiah, right? And what did Satan do when he met Jesus in the wilderness? He said, take the bread, turn, or take this rock, turn it into bread. Jesus said, no man lives by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the, proceeds from the mouth of God, okay? And then he takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple and he shows him all the nations of the world. And he says, all of these I will give to you if you just do what? Bow down to me. So Satan has, prov- has provided Jesus a fast track. Because Satan does, Satan does deceive the nations. He, does, he is called in scripture the prince of the power of the air. He does have a certain authority within the world that is a limited authority. We would say Satan's is a bound authority because God of course is sovereign over everything, even the works of Satan. We see that in Job, Andy's been teaching on, right? Satan is still is still not completely free. But in this moment, when we see Jesus have this opportunity for the fast track, he says no. He rejects the promise of Satan. He rejects the offer of Satan to take this fast track to the destiny of having all the nations under his feet. And so, here, Peter is speaking like Satan. Because what did Satan not want? Satan did not want Christ on the cross. Satan did not want Christ to die for the sins of the world. 
Now, some would say, well, in a sense, Satan did want that because he wanted Jesus dead. Yes, but he, he wanted it by his way. He didn't want it the way that God intended. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So now Jesus has, Jesus has changed from talking about himself, because this is Christ, and it says, Christ must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then rise again in three days. Now he has turned his attention to the whoever. Now the whoever in this sentence would be whoever what? Whoever would come after me. Who is that? We would say they are the believers. Whoever are the believers, whoever would come after me, let him do what? What are the things? He says, one, let him deny himself. Let him do what? Take up his cross. And then finally, let him follow me. Let him deny himself. Take up the cross. And follow me. This is almost exact same words in, in Matthew 16, 24. Jesus told his disciples, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And same thing in Luke 9, 23. This is one of those phrases that is verbatim given in all three accounts. There is very little difference if any at all, in the rendering. So consider what Jesus is saying here. You just called me the Christ. You just affirmed that I am the anointed one of God. Prophet, priest, king. You've also affirmed that you believe that, therefore you are my disciples. Here's what you need to know. As the Christ, prophet, priest, king, I am going to be rejected, suffer, die, and rise again. Peter said no. Oh, and by the way, you are also going to suffer if you follow me. First, you're going to suffer the difficulty of self-denial. I ask this in honesty. Is self-denial easy? No. Self-denial is the hardest thing we're called to do because the one that we tend to negotiate with worst is our self. When our self wants something, we have that struggle internally not to want to give it to ourselves, to treat ourselves, to find a way to give the flesh or the mind what it wants. But Jesus said, if you come after me, you have to deny yourself. Now, in a sense, the disciples had already denied themselves. In one sense, they had already 
left family and home. Remember Jesus said, no one who's left family or home on my account will by any means lose his reward. Remember Jesus talks about the fact that they have already in one sense exercised a form of self-denial, but a greater form of self-denial is coming. Because very soon they would scatter when Jesus is arrested, showing that they still had a sense of self-preservation. Especially Peter. What was Peter willing to do in his self-preservation? Lie. Willing to tell that he didn't even know Jesus and curse for the purpose of quieting those who would call him a follower of Christ. So we see this. We see this reality. Somebody coming? I keep seeing, I guess I'm just, I keep hearing things. Maybe it's just such a small group. I don't know. I just, I keep hearing what I think are phantom footsteps. <laughs> As if, uh, I guess I, I, I think I'm hearing Mike Smith coming down the walkway there. Well, I lost my place. You understand what I was saying. When it, the, the, the first thing is deny himself. They're going to have to deny themselves. Probably the greatest example of this is still yet to come in the Gospel of Mark, and that is when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Remember, the rich young ruler runs to Jesus and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, deny yourself, right? That's not exactly what he says. He says, sell everything you have and come and follow me. That's self-denial. Because he was a rich man. And Jesus said, your riches are great because, or they're so great that they are your undoing. So self-denial is first. And the second thing he says, take up your cross. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Now this part, and I'm going to make a little note here, my red pen. This part I think is often somewhat, well, red pen didn't work, somewhat looked at anachronistically. And that is, there are times when I think people read back into something, perhaps something that was not necessarily the intention. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus, of course, is well aware that he's going to die. And it's uh, very likely that he did understand he was going down a cross. Obviously, in, his, uh, in that sense, he knew what was coming. But in this phrase, when he mentions take up your cross, Jesus is not referring to his own cross that he will be taking up in just a short time. But he is, in fact, referring, in my opinion, and we could disagree perhaps, to the thousands and thousands of crosses which littered the landscape of Palestine, Israel at that time. It wasn't Palestine, wasn't called that at that time. But, but you understand that there were thousands of crucifixions that occurred. And therefore, Jesus isn't in this passage saying, look at my cross, because they, they would not have had a mental understanding of that yet. Because that event is still in the future. Like I said, it's anachronistic for them to think they're thinking about Jesus' cross. We are because we have the benefit of hindsight. They're not, so Jesus is not saying, 
take up your cross and follow me as I take my cross because they wouldn't even have thought of that. Jesus is saying, deny yourself and take up your instrument of execution. If it would have been in France 200 years ago, he would have said, take up your guillotine. If it would have been in the United States 100 years ago, he might have said, take up your gallows. You understand what I mean? He's, he's identifying the instrument which was so commonly used to kill his countrymen and he's pointing to them and saying, you are to take up this instrument of death and understand that you're following me and following me is going to possibly and most likely lead to not only self-denial in the realm of the comfortable but self-denial to the point of death. And so, as I said, I'm, I just I, I want us to understand this from their perspective. When they heard the word cross, they weren't thinking about Jesus in that moment. Now, what's interesting is when Mark writes this to the, to the church, to the Roman Christians, when he writes this to the Gentile Christians, and he is the author and they are the recipient, when he writes this to them, they probably thought about Jesus' cross the same way we do. But understand, Mark's not including this as a, as a, a, a commentary. This is what Jesus said. So when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, he's saying, take up your instrument of death, be willing to die, self-denial, and willingness to die, and follow me. And, and here is the proof that that's what he meant in verse 35. Remember, context is king. Verse 35, For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Notice Jesus identifies the real issue. The issue is, if you follow me, it's going to cost you everything. If you follow me, it's going to cost you even up to your own life. And... Whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And then he gives this statement that is simple yet profound. He says, what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now we've all seen movies where men and women are given the opportunity to sell their soul. And there's even, there's even tell, stories told of rock stars and famous rich people and movie stars who in their times of being interviewed, some have even said that they have sold their souls for their success. Some meaning simply that they gave up all of their integrity. Selling your soul can simply just mean to, it can be euphemistic for giving up your integrity. But some people genuinely believe that they made a pact with the devil. I, I forget the name of the rock star, but there was a rock star who was uh, being interviewed and he, he was very confident. Yes, I met the devil and I sold my soul to the devil. Now, I, I think that that guy was probably on drugs 
and he probably believes everything he said, but whether or not it actually happened uh, is, you know, likely uh, to be something of great uh, uh, debate. But the reality is the idea of selling one's soul. We all understand what that means and the consequences of such a thing. What a foolish thing. I remember, I don't remember who said it. I think it was a Puritan that I was looking at, but I, I, it could have been Jonathan Edwards, but I, 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 I don't want to give that absolute because I'm not certain. But there was a writer who said, only a fool would take a thousand years of suffering for 50 years of happiness. He said, imagine if you had the choice. Somebody says, okay, you can have a thousand years of suffering and 50 years of happiness, or you can have 50 years of suffering and a thousand years of happiness. Only the fool would take the first deal. Only the fool would take the 50 years of happiness and then have a thousand years of misery. And what the writer, and again, I don't remember who it was, but what he was saying is he was saying our, our issue is infinitely different, but it's the same but infinitely more because... We may have 50 years. Some of us may not have 50 years left. I probably don't. Right? I may not even have a year. I may not have a day. I don't know. But I mean, if I live a normal lifespan, I've, I've got more behind me than i got in front of me. Right? But 50 years of happiness. 50 years of selling your soul for whatever it might be is not worth the eternity that is being forfeited. That's Jesus' point. You are giving up eternity for the fleeting pleasure of sin. How foolish and yet how common. Jesus says, wide is the road, what? That leads to destruction. Many there are who find it. And Narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few there are who find it. This is the reality. So many are willing to forfeit their soul on the altar of human happiness. Verse 38. Or verse 37, for what can a man give in return for soul? Once you get there, there's nothing you can get to pay and get it back. You can't buy it back. It's not something that you can purchase. And then we have this word, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of, of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of of His Father with His holy angels. Now this is Jesus reminding us that even after this, there's something else. He's going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, rise again. And then there's going to be the church age. And then after the church age is concluded, there is going to be His return in power. And He says, there's coming a day. And on that day, you're going to be judged. And how are you going to be judged? You're going to be judged by how you responded to the call to follow me, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. 
And whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in glory. Certainly that seems to be expressing the reality that those who reject Christ here will be rejected by him in his return. The term being ashamed of simply doesn't mean ashamed in the sense of embarrassed by, but ashamed of in the sense that rejecting. To reject Christ here is to reject the only hope of eternity. To receive Christ here is to receive the only hope of eternity. And there is no third option. We find ourselves at a crossroad of rejection or reception. We will either reject Him or receive Him. And ultimately that work is a work of God in our hearts, but we still have to consider and ask ourselves where we are. Where are we? Are we on the side of those who have received or are we on the side of those who have rejected? Just this past Sunday, after church, a young man in our church came up to me and said that he was wanting to talk to me about his soul and about his spiritual life. And so we talked for a little Sunday and then we met again last night. And I told him we would begin a time of counseling because anytime someone comes to me, I pray with them, but then I counsel them for several weeks. But here's what he said. He said what affected him was when I preached the other day on being on the outside or being on the inside. Remember when I said that Sunday? I said that there are those who are outside, there are those who are inside. You know, when I was preaching that, someone online commented and said that sounds like cult talk. Cults talk about people on the outside and on the inside. And cults do talk about outsiders and insiders. Not necessarily wrong in that regard, but Jesus is much more profound than that. Because he's not talking about simply being a part of the group or not part of the group. He's talking about what happens in eternity. And what happens in eternity is how we receive Christ. And by the way, this is the invitation Jesus gives. You know, for years, Baptists especially have been really good at giving invitations. And what is the invitation? Come and believe in Jesus. How many times have you seen a Baptist preacher stand up in the pulpit and said, if any man wants to follow Christ, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and let him follow Christ. We don't do that because we're afraid it's going to run people off. But that's the invitation Jesus gave. He said, if any man come after me, if any man come after me, He's got to be willing to lose his life for my sake. Some say, well, that's that's salvation by works. No, that's what faith looks like. We are justified by faith. And faith means we lay our lives in the hand of Christ. Trusting him. Now, I did have you read verse 1 of the next passage. And time has come and gone, so I'm going to make this very quick. I just want to mention, he said to them in verse 1, I I, I do believe this is continuing the conversation, and the reason why I believe this is because if you look at Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, it's in the same chapter, same context. 
So I think Mark separates this, but it's unnecessarily separated. And he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I do believe we're going to see that next week when we see Jesus in what is known as the, um, the oh goodness, just lost my word. When Jesus is on the mountain and he is transfigured. We see the, the, the first picture of the glory of Christ as it is revealed to a few of his disciples. So that's where we're going into in our study next week. Does anyone have any questions for tonight? Well, good. Brother Andy, would you pray for us? Our Father and God, thank you for our time together, Lord.